Okay, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing honest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of honest gain, dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in their faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Well, uh, earlier this month, in a small operation, police arrested nine people in a few clubs and pubs on the East Coast for small amounts of drugs like cocaine and marijuana. It was a pretty small police operation, the kind of thing that really would not make our national news. But it did. In fact, it was all over our news. Why? Because police discovered that one of the men that they arrested was part of one of our professional sporting teams. Uh, He was a member of the Cronulla Sharks rugby team. And suddenly the news of this guy's arrest started being reported on every website and every newspaper uh, around the country. Now, what was one of the first things that the sporting club came out and said about his arrest? One of the first things they came out and said was this. We do not have a culture of drugs at our sports club. I reckon that is a very strange thing to come out and say if only one person gets arrested. Because by the, I, don't mean, I don't know about 
sporting clubs. But I imagine by the time that you add up the players, the coaches, the physios, the marketing staff, the managers, the office staff, the board of directors, you must have over 100 people that make up your sporting club. And just one of them gets arrested, that's 1%. The club releases a statement saying that the use of drugs is not widely spread through the other 99 why did they say that? It was because the guy that was caught with drugs, he wasn't just a player. Uh, He wasn't just part of the marketing staff. He was actually the chairman of the club. And as soon as he was arrested, people were saying, well, if that's what the chairman, if that's what the leader of the club is like, then what's the rest of the club like? Because leaders They affect the team. Leaders shape what the team is like. I worked for an engineering consultancy for over a decade and the best teams I ever worked in were teams that had good leaders that shaped their teams in great ways. The worst teams that I ever worked in were often led by poor leaders whose apathy and lack of care just kind of rubbed off on the team over time. See, leaders, they shape the attitude, they shape the culture, they shape the characteristics of whatever team they lead. What the leadership is like, it eventually kind of trickles down and it affects everyone else in the team. And that's why when that chairman of the rugby club got arrested for cocaine, the club had to come out and say, we don't have a culture of drugs here at the club. They had to say that because everybody was thinking, well, if that's what the leader is like, That must be what the rest of the club is like too. See, it's true that a leader eventually impacts the culture of a team or a club. So here's a question for you. If it's true for sporting teams, if it's true for teams at work, is it true for a church? Because a church is a team, a group of people who are being led by a leadership So is it true that the leaders of a church eventually impacts the culture and the attitudes of the church they lead? I think the answer is yes. It is true for a church. And that's why God has given us Titus chapter 1. Because this passage, it's all about what makes good leadership in a church. Because good leaders will create good churches. So Paul is writing to Titus, one of his co-workers, who he's left on the island of Crete to look after the churches there. And Paul tells Titus in chapter 1 to start appointing leaders to the churches. Just pick it up with me if you've got your Bibles there. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders or leaders in every town as I directed you. Now let's just stop here for a moment. As soon as we say that Titus chapter 1 is about church leadership, I think there's probably two responses in the room. The first response comes from the kind of person who's involved in leadership in this church. You might be a hub group leader, a service leader, a Bible study leader, a music leader. Those people right now are suddenly on high alert. They're starting to think, oh, I'm in a leadership role at this church. This chapter is going to be about me and what, what I should be like. What's it going to say to me? Will Jeff keep looking over to see if I'm paying attention? I think that's the first potential response. The other potential response in the room might come from people who aren't in leadership roles in this church and actually never plan on being in a leadership role. If that's you, you might be saying, well, this one's not for me. 
Uh, this one is for the 20 or 30 people in this group that are in leadership positions in the church, but I can have the night off. There's nothing in this passage that actually applies to me. I want to say that that is completely wrong. This passage has everything to do with you, even if you're not a leader, because you are affected by whether your leaders in this church are good or bad. So if you're doing a group assignment at university, you are totally affected by whether the person that assumes the leadership role is good or bad. If you are working, your working life is affected by whether your managers are good or bad. And your spiritual life, if you're invested in a church, is affected by whether your church leaders are good or bad. Now, in some ways, you don't really have a choice about who uh, your manager is at work and those kind of things, but you do get to choose who your leaders are at church because you essentially choose where to go to church. You get to choose whose hands you put your spiritual health and life in. So sure, you may not be in a leadership role in this church and you may have no intention of being, but you need to know what the Bible says about good leaders. Because the choice that you make to go to a church and to put your life under the leadership of people in this church actually will really affect you. And three years, five years, 15 years from now, that choice is going to have a huge impact on your spiritual life. So actually all of us, whether we're in leadership or not, actually need to hear God's opinion on what good church leadership actually looks like. And luckily for us, Titus chapter 1 is really, really clear on it. Uh, I want you to think of it like this. Uh, Titus, in Titus chapter 1, Paul is giving Titus everything that Titus needs to know to take out an ad for church leadership on seek.com slash Crete. You imagine you're in Crete and you log on to your web browser and you open up uh, this web page, uh, seek.com, and you click on the little box labelled what and you type in church leader and then you click on the search box labelled where and you type Crete. And then you move over to the little pink button that says seek and you click that and a job description for leaders in Crete comes up and it says this, church leaders wanted, applicants must have and the rest of chapter 1 gives three key essential things that God tells us church leaders must have if they're to apply for the role of church leadership. Titus chapter 1, it's the description of the essential things that somebody must have to be a leader in the church. What do you reckon the first thing is? Did you notice it? The first requirement for church leadership is character, godly character. Uh, Read with me from verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. Most of those are character traits. So look at that first thing, an elder, a leader, must be blameless. That doesn't mean they need to be perfect. If being perfect was a requirement of character for church leaders, we'd actually just have no leaders. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. It means not open to obvious accusation. 
It means there's no obvious public critical flaw in that person. Let me give you an illustration, I think, of what blameless is. Uh, At the moment, my wife and I are watching a political drama um, set in the White House in America, and whenever the president is about to appoint a new person to some sort of role in his government, what do they do? They go and get all the private investigators... And they get them to dig up all the past dirt on that person and they hunt for any scandal or moral failure that might become public in the future and sort of discredit the reputation of the government. See, they're not looking for someone who's perfect. They're looking for someone who's blameless. Someone that the public can't sort of accuse of some great moral scandal or failure. A church leader has to be blameless like that. And one of the best places to investigate if someone has a blameless character is in their home life. Uh, Because it's very easy to put on certain behaviour in public, but it's actually at home, away from the public eye, that someone's true character will actually be seen, which is why Paul tells Titus to examine any potential leader's home life. See, in verse 6, an elder should be faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And that verse is not saying that a leader has to be married and has to have children. It's simply saying if they are married and they do have kids, then that is a very good place to find out what their character is like. Are they faithful? Not an adulterer. Not a user of pornography. Not even the hint of sexual immorality. If they have children, they must be able to manage their children. If they can't manage their children, can they really be expected to manage the household of God, the church family? See, Paul is listing the things that someone must have to apply for the job of church leader. And the first thing that comes to his mind, before he even thinks of theological degrees and all that kind of thing, the first thing that comes to his mind is godly character. The character traits continue in verse 7. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. A church leader must not be overbearing, must not be quick-tempered, not the kind of person that loses their temper really quickly and every time that something goes wrong or they don't get their way, they lose their temper. The kind of person that could support the Fremantle Docker since 1995 and not have completely lost it in the lounge room at some point. Not given to drunkenness, he says. Not the kind of person who's out on Saturday night losing control of their behaviour because they've consumed too much. The last thing that any church would want in a leader is somebody waking up the next morning thinking, oh no, did I really do that? Did that get captured on film? Is it on Facebook? You can't be in church leadership if that's what your life is like. Not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Can you see, this is all character-related stuff. And if verse 7 is telling us what the character can't be like, verse 8 is telling us what a leader's character should be like. He must be hospitable. Someone who's relationally warm and friendly. Someone whose house you'd be welcome in. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. You can see this is all character-related stuff. 
Paul's writing the job description for a church leader in Crete and this is his first essential requirement. Before he lists anything else, he talks about having a godly character in verse 6 to 8. A famous pastor once put it this way. He once said, what my people need most of all is my personal holiness. I think Titus chapter 1 would agree. What people need most of all in their church leaders is godly character. You don't need a pastor who's cool. You don't need a pastor who's well-dressed or trendy or hangs out in the best cafes. You don't need it. You'll have it in a few weeks when Ez starts, but you don't need it. What you need most of all, what you need most desperately is for leaders with godly character. You know, if I have a few weeks when I'm tired and I preach a few unengaging sermons in my church, my church will survive. In fact, if we're still reading the Bible, there's every chance we'll still grow. If your hub group leaders are feeling the pressure from university or, or, or work and they run a Bible study one night that isn't particularly engaging, the church will survive. If you've got your Bibles open together, there's every chance you'll still grow. But if your leaders fail morally, if your leaders start stealing money, if somebody has an affair, the church might not survive that. That's the kind of thing that actually destroys churches. And so the first thing that Paul puts on the job description is that all leaders must have certain character traits, godly character So that's the first requirement that he puts down. Did you notice the second thing? Now, the second thing is that leaders must have conviction. That's related to believing the gospel. Have a look at the first bit of verse 9. You must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. Now, I reckon that's a pretty interesting way to put it. Church leaders must hold firmly to the message of the gospel. Now, the only reason that you tell somebody to hold firmly to something is if you know that there's a risk that they're going to drop it. It's the kind of thing that I say to my kids every week when they unload the dishwasher and they pick up the big glass plate. The first thing I say is, hold tightly, use both hands, because they're always dropping stuff. Now, Paul says, look for a leader that will hold firmly to the gospel, I think he says that because Paul knows that there are certain forces in the world that are continually pushing leaders to just loosen their grip a bit on the gospel. And society is putting pressure on Christians to loosen their grip on the gospel, to drop the idea that there's something morally, spiritually wrong with us inside. To drop the idea that we're not actually good enough to earn our way to heaven. To drop the idea that there's only one God and that there's only one objective truth. And there are plenty of church leaders over time who have slowly loosened their grip on the gospel just one finger at a time until they've dropped it. And they've led the church away from truth. And that's a disaster. Because when leaders let go of the gospel message, they're letting go of a message that saves. They're letting go of the good news that Jesus died to rescue sinners. And that's why a strong conviction in the gospel is really important for church leaders. A leader must hold firmly to the message of the gospel. So if the job description for a church leader was on seek.com, here's what we've seen so far. Uh, applicants must firstly have character traits, a godly character. 
Secondly, they must have conviction. They must hold firmly to the message of the gospel. And lastly, in Titus chapter 1, there's one more attribute that they must have, and that is competency. They must have skill. They've got to have skills in certain areas. Being skilled in the areas of admin or organising or hurriedly sorting out a second projector when the first lamp goes, all those kind of skills and competencies are actually really quite helpful. Uh, But there is one skill in particular which Paul focuses in on. Did you notice what it was? It's competency in teaching and rebuking from the Bible. Let's just pick it up from verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. So that's the conviction that we just spoke about. Here comes the competency. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So Paul is saying, look, Titus, when you are appointing leaders in the church, look for people who are skilled, look for people who are competent in teaching the Bible. Look for leaders who can encourage others with sound doctrine, he says. Doctrine is just what the Bible says about a particular topic. So encouraging others with what the Bible says about a certain topic, that's kind of the easy and enjoyable part of church leadership. Uh, Now, we've just finished a series on Psalms, and one of the things that happens when you finish a series is people come up and say things like this. I really loved uh, what Psalm 13 said about suffering, or I loved what uh, Psalm 22 showed me about God's love. See, a leader is supposed to be competent at encouraging people from the Bible, but that's only half of what he's supposed to do. He's also supposed to be competent in refuting people who oppose it. That's what happens in the last bit of verse 9, right? So he can encourage others by sound doctrine and, look at this, refute those who oppose it. Encouraging people from the Bible, that's fun. That's great. Refuting, it's never enjoyable. I remember being at a wedding years ago and sitting on a table with lots of people who are regular at church and one of them said this, I like to think that God doesn't stand over us as judge. Uh, I like to think that God doesn't judge all our actions as right or wrong according to what God thinks uh, is right. Rather, I think that God judges whether we do things sincerely in line with what each person believes. Everybody at the table kind of nodded uh, their head as they agreed that if you act sincerely with what you believe, that's the kind of thing that's important. It was not fun to be the one guy at the table that said, actually, if you want to profess to be a Christian, you cannot say that that's true. Let me just give you an example. What about the extremist who sincerely believes that blowing himself up and killing as many people as he can is pleasing to God? Sincerity is not the world's problem. Sin is the world's problem. See, being competent at refuting those in your church who oppose the truth isn't actually very much fun, but it is going to be super important for leaders in the church of Crete to be really good at that. Why? Well, do you remember what the national stereotype of Crete was? Liars. The national stereotype of Crete was people that actually didn't value objective truth. And so the one thing that church leaders in Crete are going to have to be very, very good at is refuting people in their own churches. And Paul gives us a really good case example of what that's going to look like for people in Crete in the next few verses. Look at verse 10. 
For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they'll be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. See, in a society like Crete that actually doesn't value the truth, Christians there, they're going to have a very hard time holding firmly to the gospel truth. And so leaders in the church in Crete, they're going to have to be very competent at encouraging others by sound doctrine and refuting people in their own churches who oppose it. And I want to suggest that as, as our Western society walks further away from our Christian roots and as our culture becomes more opposed to the gospel truth, that's exactly what our leaders are going to need to be competent in as well. We're going to need leaders who are competent at encouraging others from the scriptures and refuting people who oppose it. So there you go. If Titus was going to take out an ad on seek.com for church leaders in Crete, here's the three essential things that he'd have on his job description. Firstly, character. Leaders need godly character. Secondly, conviction. They need to hold firmly convinced of the truth of the gospel. And lastly, they need to be competent. Competent and skilled at teaching others sound doctrine and refuting those who oppose it. Now, do you notice something about those three characteristics on screen? They're actually all about truth and godliness, aren't they? Character? Well, that's, that one, that's all about godliness. Conviction? Well, that's about knowing the truth. And competency, that was about teaching the truth. Truth and godliness. The two things that we said at the start, the book of Titus was all about. The church in Crete need leaders who are shaped by truth and godliness. And if the leaders are shaped by truth and godliness, then over time the members of the church will be shaped by truth and godliness as well. And if it's true for the church in Crete in the first century, then it is true for Christians in Perth in the 21st century. Now, why should you care about that? What difference does it actually make to you sitting here at the back of church? You come in, you sit down, you sing some songs, you read the Bible, you listen to a sermon, maybe you go to hub group during the week. Like, really, how does the character, the conviction and the competency of your church leadership actually affect you? I think the answer is slowly and hugely. Because over time, leaders of a church will shape you in ways that you're not even conscious of. I mean, isn't that what everyone was saying about the chairman of that sports club when he got arrested for cocaine? Everybody was saying, well, if that's what the chairman is like, that's going to be what the rest of the team is eventually like. Because the chairman, he will affect the managers, the managers will affect the coaching team, and the coaching team will affect the players. See, over time, leaders shape the team that they lead. And if it's true for a sporting club, oh boy, how much more true is it for a church where leaders have an active role in teaching and modelling Christian life to their church? 
So you guys should care very little if your church leaders have a certain charisma or are funny. You guys should care a lot, a lot, if your leaders are shaped by truth and godliness. Because over time, that's the thing that's actually going to affect you and shape you by truth and godliness. Uh, You should care very much if your church leaders have character, conviction and competency. Because that's the thing that will help determine whether you are still growing strong and joyfully as a Christian five years, ten years and fifteen years from now. Clearly it's not the only thing that affects it, but it does play a very big role. Now this is really important for you guys uh, at UniChurch because as I understand the UniChurch model, you guys all eventually leave, right? Like you kind of, not, not just yet, stay there. Like you kind of, you do your, your four years on campus and then you, you graduate and then I think you hang around for a few years and you serve and then I think the model is you get trained and equipped and then at some point you kind of join another church or congregation. So you're going to have to choose another congregation to join. You're going to finish uni and you're going to have to make all these really big choices. Which job do I take? Where am I going to live? Do I move out of home? All those really big decisions that you guys will start to make uh, later on in life. I want to suggest that the biggest decision that you're going to make, and, and believe me, I'm not being flippant when I say this, but the biggest decision that you guys are going to make will be deciding where to go to church. Because over time, that decision is going to affect your character and conviction of the gospel. You're going to put your lives into the spiritual leadership of certain leaders. And that is going to have a shaping effect and an eternal consequence over time. Choosing a church is really hard because there's just so many things to consider, right? The location... The structure, the chance to serve, the music, the demographic, the time they meet, the teaching, the list. Actually, when you start to think about it, it just gets bigger and bigger. But as big as that list gets, right up the top, there's these three things to consider about the leadership. Their character. Are they godly? Their conviction. Are they holding tightly to the truth of the gospel? And their competency. Are they able to use the Bible to encourage believers and refute those in error? And choosing to be led by people with those three attributes will help, won't be the only thing, but it will help determine if you are shaped by the truth of the gospel and godly living for many years to come. So I think the first application for us is to choose to be led by leaders who have character, conviction and competency. Choose to be led by people who are shaped by truth and godliness because in the end, that's the kind of thing that is actually going to shape you. I think the second application is to pray for our church leaders here at St. Matthew's and around our country and the world, that they will be shaped by these three things. I had to do some learning on this this week. Uh, Every week, there is someone in my congregation, on Monday morning, I send them my prayer points for the week. Dear such and such, please pray for this and that. This week, just out of interest, I went into my sent mail. I caught up all the emails I've sent this person from the beginning of the year. And what I found actually really shocked me, slightly disappointed me even. I worked out that I almost always ask for prayer for only one of these things, only one of these C's. Can you guess which one it was? It was competency. 
prayer points like this. I'm giving this evangelistic talk on Thursday. Please pray that I do a good job of it. I have this really important meeting coming up that I need to lead. Can you please pray that I would lead well? We're starting a sermon series on Titus. Please pray that I do a good job of it. Competency. I realise I actually hardly ever had prayer requests for my character or my conviction of the gospel. And that is so short-sighted. Because leaders that lack godly character and leaders that let go of the gospel conviction are leaders that destroy churches. I really hope that you are praying for your leaders here at Uni Church. And I really hope that you're praying for their character, their conviction that they hold firmly to the gospel, as well as their competency. Because if you guys have leaders in this church, and if we have leaders in Australia and leaders around the world that are shaped by truth and godliness, then it will create churches and Christians who are shaped by those things too, to the glory of God. Amen.